crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem, a program where we cover the latest in biblical archaeology from here in Israel and also cover prophetically significant news. Today we're going to stick to the archaeology side of things and on the second half we're going to go through a recent article in Haaretz just from this past week, very provocative article entitled Meet the Real King David, the one the Bible didn't want you to know about and that's written by Ariel David and it quotes at length a theory that is posited now by Israel Finkelstein, the renowned archaeologist that wrote the Bible on Earth, the archaeologist that's tried to take down the biblical King David and Solomon, the united monarchy, and we'll look at his latest attempt to do that in this article in the second half. But before we get to that, just a little bit of news. This is the last day today, this Sunday, for the exhibit, The Seals of Isaiah and King Hezekiah Discovered, that is on show and has been since June 10th, 2018 at uh, Armstrong Auditorium in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is just north of Oklahoma City. And we've had there the two uh, seal impressions of renown, the latest two from Jerusalem that are extremely important. One of them, of course, being King Hezekiah himself, the famous Judean king that ruled at the very end of the 8th century, a time period we'll talk about a bit more even in the second half. Well, his seal impression, verified by archaeology, his very personal seal impression that says King Hezekiah or belonging to King Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, that's there for one more day. And then as is the seal of Isaiah, uh, prophet, as it reads, Isaiah the prophet. And so this has been an exhibit that's got quite a lot of uh, good attention for us back in Oklahoma. That's where our uh, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong College is, and it's on the campus of the college. And we've had a lot of guests from around the United States come in to, to see that, and we've been very pleased by the turnout. And indeed, I bet there's a lot of people going through it today just because it's the last day it's opening. Well, next week uh, is, well, this week, in a few days, it'll be packed up. The Israeli Antiquities Authority, one of their representatives, is heading over to uh, Oklahoma tomorrow, leaving uh, Israel tomorrow, and will be starting to pack up the exhibit on Wednesday and Thursday, and then will be back in Israel uh, by next Tuesday. So it's been really wonderful to have this exhibit. Again, we've, we've, we went to spend no lengths uh, of, of effort to try and make this biblical period of 2,700 years ago live. Because there's just a huge wealth of archaeological material, both from Israel and also abroad in Assyria, that backs up the biblical account of King Hezekiah and his confrontation with the Assyrians and the deliverance by God. The deliverance by God. And so if you want to, if you haven't been able to check out that exhibit in person, you can go to watchjerusalem.co.ci. Uh, 
www.cloud.co.il. And we have an exhibit tab there. And you can click on that and go to the seals of Hezekiah uh, there and, and Isaiah and look through some of the information. There's also nice pictures if you scroll down to the different artifacts that are in the exhibit and a couple of neat videos that we originally that we created uh, for the exhibit. There's also a full color, beautiful uh, magazine that details the exhibit. This is not just a a um, a, a rehashing of the of the biblical narrative. This is a really wonderful document uh, that puts to the the secular history alongside the Bible and see how they complement each other, complement each other so well. So if you want to request that, it's free. You can go to watchjerusalem.co.il and request that from our literature tab. And I'll also put it in the show notes for today's show. You might have seen last week, or it might have perhaps it was the week earlier. Uh, the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, must have been a week and a half ago, visiting Tel Shiloh. This is, of course, one of the most important archaeological sites in Israel, in the the center there, or just north of Judea and southern, um, we could say Judea and Samaria, in between the two. And Shiloh, of course, is where the Ark was for almost 400 years. When Israel took the Promised Land, was coming in with Joshua, they set it up there and it would stay there for another few hundred years. Well, there's archaeology that's been going on, obviously, for a long, long time there, archaeological investigation. And the prime minister visited that site a week and a half ago, and the Arkans, former Arkansas um, governor, Mike Huckabee, was with him. And it's really interesting. He's got a, he, there's some pictures that were shared on Twitter. I wasn't part of the group. Um, but one of the, one of the team members, Dr. Elot Mazar's team members, uh, who actually did the study on the Hezekiah Buller itself, was there. She excavates, or I did excavate, at Shiloh. She was one of the lead archaeologists there uh, in previous years. Her name is Riut, and uh, she was there in the picture showing the Prime Minister and uh, Mr. Mike Huckabee um, the Hezekiah Buller, which is really interesting. There they are at Shiloh, and uh, he's he's showing him more of the other biblically significant artifacts that have been discovered of late in Israel. And uh, if, you, if you're listening to this in Oklahoma, it airs, this program airs at 10 a.m. in Oklahoma, in northern Oklahoma, or, or north, north, north Oklahoma City, then duck down to, uh, to Armstrong Auditorium to get, a, get your final chance to have a look at the first time that a biblical uh, king, Judean king, has been supported by first and last name uh, in, a, in, a, in a correct archaeological context. And that's there uh, in Armstrong Auditorium right now. Speaking of of Shiloh, there was an article that was published on uh, earlier this week. It was by AP. I think it was a couple of days ago. It spread like wildfire, obviously, since it is by AP and a lot of these. Uh, that, that's a, a news agency that is then picked up. Um, by a lot of other papers, and they publish it. And the New York Times actually had this in the New York, in their paper, and a lot of others about. Uh, Shiloh. It's entitled Ancient West Bank Site Draws Christians and Controversy. And this was an article that was written by Ilan Ben Zion, their archaeological, or at least archaeological writer based in Israel. And um, he writes about the uh, the site itself and how over the last couple of years, there's been an incredible influx of visitors to the site because it is receiving more attention. 
the the archaeology there, the, the mass, the, there's massive archaeological digs that are taking place there every single year. The largest archaeological dig in Israel, in terms of numbers of people participating, takes place in Shiloh. It has done for the last couple of years. And we interviewed the the director of those excavations, Dr. Scott, Scott Stripling, uh, last year after last year's season. And so, if you want to go back and listen to that, it's about some of the amazing findings that they've got coming out of the ground in Shiloh. You should go ahead and do that. Uh, and I'll leave a link for that also. Now, this article itself, it it kind of plays the middle line. It doesn't really discuss much of the archaeological discoveries itself, but rather talks about how this is a site in Palestinian land, and you've got Jews that are excavating it and Christians that are excavating it, and they're basically trying to prove the Bible correct uh, as they see it, and how that there's other ruins on the site that are being neglected. Um, among the ruins, I'm quoting now, are three Byzantine-era churches and two mosques. One of the two historical mosques is located outside the archaeological park, while the second is unmarked and underdeveloped for visitors. It's very interesting. <laughs> this is something that you see forever uh, in reporting of archaeological sites in Israel, be it the city of David or be it Shiloh or anything else. Everyone seems to complain that when you visit these sites, oh, there's no huge, uh, huge documentation in terms of or huge publicity that's given to the other eras. Why isn't there a huge sign that talks that brings attention to this awesome mosque that was located at Shiloh? Well, who's coming to Shiloh? Who's coming to Jerusalem? Who's coming to the different biblical sites in Israel? Mostly, they're either Jews or they're Christians. And so it makes sense to showcase the history of those peoples that they're most interested in. And so that's what they do here. And of course, that, that the history of, these, these, uh, of the, the Jewish roots and the biblical roots to these sites, the Israelite routes to these sites is predates uh, the construction of these mosques by you know over over a thousand years, and so even in that sense, it's the a more ancient, uh, more ancient artifact and more ancient features on these sites are from the biblical period, and so it just makes so much sense uh, to showcase that history, considering too these people aren't going to the site to see Muslim um, discoveries; they just aren't doing that. And so it makes sense to showcase what they are interested in. And it's not a sense of downplaying the other history as well. It just is what it is. I mean, you excavate, you excavate in Jerusalem, and yeah, of course, you're going to find uh, different buildings from, from the different uh, Arab periods in Jerusalem's history. But again, most people are interested in the biblical period, and that's why they're visiting. One other quote here, this article, it says, No evidence of the tabernacle has been found, but archaeologists are looking... It's just just a just an interesting sentence there. I mean, we don't actually expect to find much evidence of the tabernacle itself. Even Dr. Scott Stripling doesn't expect to find much evidence of the tabernacle itself, and yet it's trying to make people out these make the archaeologists out that they're on this crusade to find these lost relics from the Bible, when really the lost relics from the biblical period are in the ground or they're not. And so, an archaeologist's job is to dig, dig through the earth find what they find and, and excavate in the most uh, uh, in the best possible way as so as to ensure you don't lose any data from any period and then you find what you find and you come away and you look at other historical sources and see if it fits or it doesn't or how it correlates with the Bible or it doesn't that's the purpose 
That's the purpose. It can, it can, in some ways, it can confirm the biblical accuracy of the scriptures, but that is not what the archaeologists are out to do. They're excavating in Shiloh. Why? Yes, because it has biblical significance. And yes, they would love to find proof that the tabernacle was there, but it's not like you're actively looking for it. I mean, these, these people that have a religious backing, uh, like Mr. Stripling, he does believe in the Bible, and like Dr. Elot Mazar, she's not religious, but she believes in the ac- that it's an accurate historical source. Uh, these people have to be super cautious. I would say more cautious than the other side, the anti-Bible side, the side that doesn't believe in the, in the veracity of the Bible. These people have to be more careful that their procedure, their archaeological process is perfect, is beyond reproach, is extremely scientific, because you can bet there's a whole host of other archaeologists from Tel Aviv University and elsewhere that are going to be pouring over the study to peck at it in any way that they can. And that's what has that's what happens in Shiloh, that's what happens with Dr. Elot Mazar's excavations. Um, but a lot of the time they can't find anything wrong with the process. They can't. And that's what is so amazing about them. I mean, I've worked with Elot Mazar for a, a decade now, and her, she is relentless in ad- adherence to archaeological procedure and correct documentation. And she pours over the sources when she goes back, and she's there today, like every other day, at Hebrew University, going through the discoveries of the past uh, decade, really, in the Palace of David excavations, and then also on the Ophel, preparing those final reports. She gathers all the, the data that she can and puts it alongside historical sources that are available, and then she gives her results and, put it, and um, puts it out to the public, puts it out to the other scholars to look at. There's no hiding. There's no hiding the results. Nobody would want to do that. So it's, it's Jerusalem. It's so important. Um, but that's what she's doing. As she so often says, the history of Jerusalem doesn't belong to her. She's fortunate enough to excavate uh, those areas. And so she wants to make sure she, she is excavating for everybody. And that means doing it well, making sure you publish what you find as she's doing. And then as the excavator, it is your responsibility also to, to give conclusions, to talk about what you've found, to summarize what you've found for the lay people and what she has found in Jerusalem, uh, more often than not, definitely does back up and support the historicity of the Bible from the time of Jeremiah on back all the way through to the time of King David. I was just at a dentist just before this uh, program and uh, my wife was there talking to the dentist and telling uh, just told the dentist what I did and who I worked with. And, and he said, the dentist said, well, what an honor to be working with Dr. Elot Mazar. And indeed, it is an honor to work with somebody that puts as much effort as she does into their craft. Now, you understand that as well. If you've ever worked with somebody that is completely driven, utterly consumed by what their life's goal is, and are working feverishly as fast as they can, as meticulously as they can, to put out a product that is beneficial for others, it's really inspiring. It's inspiring to be around. And in her case, um, we are all the beneficiaries of that effort. 
it, it is crazy for me to think, uh, just thinking about the context here. I mean, Dr. Elot Mazar, I think she is one of a kind. There are others definitely that are excavating and documenting what they find and putting it out, whatever they find. And if it happens to back up the scriptures, they say so. But it's it's really startling for me to think about an archaeologist that is just one lady with a few assistants in a cramped office in Hebrew University, the same office that her grandfather was in, Dr. Benjamin Mazar. And you have the, the Jewish people, and you have uh, Christians throughout the world, uh, many of whom that believe in the, the accuracy of the Bible and hang their hat on the what the Bible says and believe God's promises in the Bible. And you have this, this one lady there that is fighting tooth and nail to ensure that the other voices are counted. Voices out there that would say that David and Solomon didn't exist. Voices that would say that the Bible is a, a fabrication. Voices that would try to equate uh, or talk about King David's empire as a mere myth. And that it was just a stolen history. A history of a different leader hundreds of years later that the biblical writers put back on their king, their originator of their Jerusalem kingdom. That's what you get from other prominent archaeologists in Israel, as we'll see. But, you know, in a way, I mean, we have a few archaeologists, and Elabazar in particular, that are willing to take the baton up, not for us. We are the beneficiaries of their effort. But Dr. Mazar, she's just putting her work out because she loves Jerusalem, she loves history, she loves archaeology, and she believes it's fair that the true record be known. And so she's there at Hebrew University in her cramped office with limited funds, limited people supporting her, and yet, in many ways, the hopes of a billion people uh, riding in a way on her shoulders. We're not. You're most likely not uh, an archaeological expert. You probably don't have some degree or master's or doctorate in history, in biblical history. You probably don't have your hands in the ground in Israel. And so you can't prove these things for for yourself. You have to rely on what archaeologists say in many ways. And at least in terms of digging up uh, the Bible the biblical periods. And you've got experts out there, expert archaeologists from Israel, that would like to have you believe that there's no proof for King David and Solomon. That even if they did exist, they were nobodies. And in fact, the biblical narrative of that period, well, that was just a copy of something that happened 300 years later that was foisted back by pro-Jewish authors uh, on the Davidic period. We're going to talk about this theory uh, when we come back. This theory that King David wasn't really as the Bible describes him, but rather King David's life was all about a different king, King Jeroboam II. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. 
Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome back to Jerusalem. For the second half of today's show, I want to talk about this article that featured March 27, 2019, four days ago, in Haaretz, written by Ariel David, Meet the King David, the one the Bible didn't want you to know about from Haaretz. And that's very interesting here, even just the author's name. He's a journalist, so I'm going to cut him some slack in this. Of course, I don't know everything either. I'm just trying to look at the facts as I see them and as they seem to be clear to me, and that's how I'll discuss it today. But his name, Ariel David, look at that. He, his last name is David. And this article that he writes about is basically doing away with with David, as the Bible describes. His first name is Ariel, which is another name for Jerusalem. So here you have the name of Jerusalem and David's, oh, and Jerusalem's mighty king in the name of the author. And yet, looking at that byline, uh, that is not a sign of things to come, that's for sure. I'll read the first couple of paragraphs so you can get some context here. Apparently, there was a united monarchy after all posits biblical archaeologist Israel Finkelstein, not just under the kings Saul, David, or Solomon, but centuries later under Jeroboam II. If you've never heard of King Jeroboam II, you probably are not alone. He's barely mentioned in the Bible despite ruling over a big chunk of the Levant 2,800 years ago for no less than four decades. But you've definitely heard of the great kings Saul, David, and Solomon, even though the actual existence of their united monarchy of Israel and Judah has long been doubted by scholars. Now, mounting evidence from archaeological digs and biblical scholarship has led to a startling new theory which conflates the great Hebrew kings of yore with the oft-overlooked Jeroboam II. A great united monarchy of sorts did exist, the new theory posits, but it was formed under none other than the Israelite king Jeroboam II, some two centuries after the time of David and Solomon, spreading as far as today's Syria and Jordan. Now, this is really interesting. Really interesting if you've been listening to our program and also if you've been going to uh, our websites much, much, because you're pretty familiar with Jeroboam II. But here we have this new theory that posits that what the Bible says about David, Solomon, and Saul wasn't really true. But this this theory about this united monarchy was formed later under the rulership of the Israelite king Jeroboam. Now, people, as you as you know, the United Kingdom refers to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah being together, united under one monarch, as they were under Saul, David, and Solomon and then broken uh, with Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam I, as the Bible describes, he was the, he was the one that broke off with ten tribes and, and, went and ruled northward from, uh, from Shechem and later the kingdom from Samaria. That was Jeroboam I. We're talking about a king a couple hundred years after Jeroboam I, that being Jeroboam II. I'll continue reading here. In striking contrast to the biblical narrative, it was the kingdom of Israel in the north that controlled Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah in the south. See, the Bible's got it wrong. It wasn't the house of David. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't David that, that ruled, over Jeru, ruled over Jerusalem and the rest of Israel from Jerusalem in the south. It was actually Jeroboam the second that ruled over Judah and had a united monarchy, and he ruled from the north, from Samaria. And why would the Bible say otherwise? 
Because, it writes, the holy text was first compiled in Jerusalem more than a century after Jeroboam II's reign under the Judaic king Josiah, who was seeking justification for some expansionism, expansionism of his own. And so you can read about uh, Josiah. Uh, Josiah lived in the late 7th century, um, 640, I can't really remember, 640 to maybe 640 to 609, something like that, 608 is when he ruled over Judah. He was the king of Judah of the house of David, the line of King David. And it talks about how he did venture northward into the former Israelite territory. The Israelites had already been taken into captivity by that time by by the Assyrians. And the author's stating here that it is Israel Finkelstein's theory that to justify that northward expansion into the Israelite territories, he had to create, the writers of the Bible had to create a, a story of such an expansive Judaite kingdom that was over Israel also. And so they gave that kingdom to David. Then it writes this, and it was the real life reign of Jeroboam II that offered Josiah the inspiration for the biblical story of the magnificent kingdom of David and Solomon, according to the new theory proposed by Tel Aviv University professor Israel Finkelstein, one of Israel's top biblical archaeologists. And he is. He is one of Israel's best uh, biblical archaeologists. And when he's digging in the field, um, it looks like he does excavate quite well. He's led the excavations at Megiddo for quite some time. But when it comes to his conclusions, when it comes to his theories, this one here seems to be the most outlandish uh, that I've actually uh, read about uh, from him. And obviously he, he, he wrote the Bible unearthed, I think it was back in 2005, with another author and talking about David and Solomon. Now that we know that they exist, definitely from the Tel Dan Steely, um, they definitely weren't as the Bible describes as, as basically his, his theory and that they would know nothing. Munch, um, uh, just low-level rulers, uh, chieftains that ruled from a little hill town in Judea over probably a city-state, nothing more than that. And that it was Israel in the north that was really the big and strong one. And Judah in the south was small, and, and therefore their kings David and Solomon were nothing. That's what he would like you to believe. That's what his theory talks about. But he's trying to make it sound like the, the biblical, the way the biblical narrative goes is incorrect. Um, but that's the Bible describes that. The Bible describes the north being quite large compared to the south in many instances. But it does, the Bible, glorify the kings of uh, that came out of David and David and Solomon. Why? Because the righteous kings, as the Bible says, came from the southern kingdom. Not all of them. In fact, the minority of the kings from the southern kingdom of Judah were righteous. Uh, most of them were, were wicked and evil and did away with the law. Um, but there were a few, uh, six or seven, that were righteous. But in the north, none were. None were. Because if they were, what would have they have done? They would have understood that they needed to render to the line of David. That's what they would have understood. David ruling from Jerusalem. But that's, of course, not what happened. This is what he continues to write here in this article. As the Bible tells it, sometime in the 11th to 10th century, the 12 Israelite tribes under uh, united under strong monarchs, Saul, David, and Solomon. But the fourth genera- royal generation, Solomon's son Rehoboam, was unable to hold the people together. That's true. All the tribes except Judah revolted against him, forming their own kingdom of, of Israel north of Jerusalem, led by a king named Jeroboam. This 
this uh, the first of his name not to be confused with our hero Jeroboam the second. That's that's who he is. Our hero <laughs> Jeroboam the uh, second. If you can believe believe that. So let's do away with David and let's keep Jeroboam the second. He's the real hero. Uh, this is crazy. Uh, let's go on. Some archaeologists have long questioned the historicity of this account, thanks in large part to Finkelstein's own research. That is true. Thanks to his research and his writing, a lot of people are starting to question or have questioned the United Monarchy under David and Solomon. Monu- uh, thanks in large part to Finkelstein's own research, monumental ruins found across modern Israel from Megiddo, Chatzor, and Gezer, once hailed as evidence of Solomon's building prowess, have been redated to about a century after the fabled king was supposed to have reigned. So he's talking about these cities that were mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 9 and verse 15 as the building projects of King Solomon. Megiddo, Chatzor, Jerusalem, the wall around Jerusalem, it says that he built there. Um, that's what the Bible says. Solomon built these up. And then you excavate these cities and they all have a, a very unique gate, what is known as the Israelite gate or the six chambered gate. And the original excavators of Chatzor, uh, Chatzor and Gezer um, all believe from the dating of those that they were evidence of that they were from Solomon's time. Well, he comes along and he excavates at Megiddo and he says he's got a different date. And so he changes the chronology, the way that they, um, the way that the, the pottery relates to the time period attached to it and the pottery that is associated with these gates, therefore, he says is actually later than what everybody else says. And they call that low chronology. And so he's saying, um, he's saying that those beautiful gates that are exactly the same in, found in cities that the Bible says Solomon built and that the archaeologists previously that excavated them said dated to Solomon's time, they're all wrong. They're dated to 100 years after. Now, his theory of low chronology, this article doesn't even mention it. His theory of low chronology that is pushing these structures and other uh, discoveries from this period, the iron, early Iron 2A, out of David and Solomon's time period, that is getting less and less attention as time goes on in the archaeological circles, and it's pr- getting proven over and over and over again to be wrong wrong and yet you won't have that mentioned here most people if they're honest now actually do believe that the iron 2 is probably closer iron 2a is probably closer or these gatehouses are probably closer to solomon's time or david's time far closer to that than what that what finkelstein has said but there's no mention of that in these article this article these great ruins are now thought to be what remains of the northern kingdom of israel uh, that the Bible describes as a, gen- as a rascally rene- renegade, but which was in reality a powerful regional force. Well, the Bible describes it, yes, as a rascal, yes, as a renegade, but the northern kingdom of Israel is described in the Bible as a large force. So that's not against what the Bible says. Then it says this, quote, There is a tension between the biblical description, this is Finkelstein now, And uh, I'll start again. There is a tension between the biblical description, which makes Judah and Jerusalem the center of the universe, and archaeology and ancient Near Eastern texts, which make it very clear that Israel was the big story. So he's talking about Israel being the northern tribes, as opposed to Jerusalem in the south. It was more prosperous and more prominent. It had a larger population and competed for hegemony over the entire Levant. Well, in a, in a way, he is kind of right. I mean, Judah and Jerusalem are, are the center, and that 
it doesn't necessarily say they're not the center because they're bigger or stronger or they're not the center because they have more people. They're the center because it's God's city, Jerusalem, and David's throne was there. And this is the throne that all the the promises, many of the promises the Bible are attached to. This is where a few of the righteous kings were. This is where a lot of the prophets came out of, Jerusalem. Though many of them preached to and gave their message to Israel in the north. I mean, the Bible does focus around Jerusalem. But that's not to say it was incorrect. That's not to say it wasn't accurate. That's just where the focus, that, that's just the context in which it was written. Then, he, then the article continues this way. Archaeologists from opposing camps still fiercely debate the size and power of Jerusalem in the 10th century BCE, but so far there is little hard evidence that the founders of the Davidic dynasty ruled over anything larger than a tiny city-state in the Judean highlands. Now that's that's where it ends. It that's where the 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 intelligent discussion of what's been discovered from David and Solomon's time ends. Basically saying there's little evidence, little hard evidence that they had anything there in Jerusalem, and that if they did, they just probably ruled over Jerusalem and maybe a couple other villages around 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 the hills of uh, hills of Judea, and it, it qu- completely negates a lot of archaeological discovery and pushback on Finkelstein's theory from the past decade. And anybody, basically, if you get to this point, you should stop reading this article. If you know anything about what's been discovered, and we've been trying to put this out about the proof of David's palace in Jerusalem. David's palace in Jerusalem. Does that sound far-fetched? Well, have you read up about it from anyone other than uh, uh, Finkelstein or Haaretz? Um, look at the proof. Look at look at the dating. Look at the structure. See what you think. Might no, sure we don't. It's not like it says this is David's palace, but the dating lines up. And then what's been discovered on the Ophel is another huge. I mean, huge structure from the early Iron Iron Two A again. This same biblical period, slightly after David, slightly different material culture, but again. That the the size and scope of the structure being unearthed right now on the Ophel um, does rival anything in the north for sure. And where is it in Jerusalem? Walk walk around walk around that that area from the southern wall of the Temple Mount down to the city of David and go underneath and view the palace of David and view the mighty stepstone structure. That's from the 10th century. That's from David's time, and it's a massive wall of rock, 25 meters tall. Go find that in the north. You can't. You can't. And when's that from? That's from David's period. Then apparently David didn't rule over anything much apart from this little this little tiny hill of Jerusalem. We'll go back to go back to Chibet Kaiapha uh, and see a fortress from David's time on the border of the territory of the Philistines. And this town or this fortress, I should say, overlooks the very valley that that uh, Goliath and David fought at, and it's there to this day. And the most logical, plausible um, people that ruled over it and built it, um, they were David's men, David's men. And so, yes, there has proof. Uh, Proof has been found of David's kingdom and a large and well-fortified Jerusalem during the 10th century but not for this author. Finkelstein and other scholars posit 
that the stories of the United Monarchy originated in the late 7th century BCE under the Judaite King Josiah. But why would Josiah have his scribes aggrandize the history of his ancestors? When Josiah came to power, the kingdom of Israel had long since been destroyed by the Assyrians, whose empire was in turn collapsing, giving Judah an opportunity to expand into the formerly Israelite lands. The idea that there once had been a large pan-Israelite kingdom ruled from Jerusalem would have worked nicely as justification for Josiah's expansionism and as a rallying cry to unite the people. But where did Josiah take the idea of united monarchy from? Certainly not David, because David didn't have it, apparently. Finkelstein asked and answered, Possibly he was inspired by Jeroboam II, who actually did reign over a great kingdom as ruler of Israel from around 788 to 747 BCE. And so... Josiah, the righteous king of Israel, uh, Judah, that finds the book of the law and that has uh, just just starts expanding the kingdom and cleaning up, cleaning up the nation from sin and idolatry. He was inspired by Jeroboam the second story, Jeroboam the second, who was full of idolatry. Continuing from this article, the first clues are in the Bible itself. Written from a pro-Judaic perspective, the Bible gives Jeroboam II the same treatment. It reserves all other Israelite kings, describing them as sinful polytheists who did evil in the sight of the eternal. And that's indeed right. That's what the Bible describes. Regarding Jeroboam II, the text, however, grudgingly acknowledges his major conquests, ranging from the area of the Dead Sea to Damascus, and describes him as a savior of Israel. Jeroboam II's success, despite his apparent wickedness, is explained thusly. And it quotes, for the eternal, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would, and the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Then Finkelstein writes, the composer of the text needs to say the usual bad things about the kings of Israel, but he knows it's not so simple because there's a memory that Jeroboam II was a great king who ruled for a long time over a vast territory. So he solves it by saying that it was God, the God of Israel, who gave him his prosperity and territorial, territorial expansion. Now, it is very rare. It's extremely rare. In fact, you can't find any mention of this happening anywhere in the Bible apart from to King, uh, King Jeroboam, where you have a completely unrighteous ruler from the northern kingdom of Israel that, whose territory expands in a massive degree. Normally, it's really interesting, if you look at the periods of prosperity in Israel, there are a few of them. And the first of those is obviously from David and Solomon's time to the beginning of Solomon's reign. And then the end of, of David's time, there was great expansion underneath the United Kingdom. And then you can go a little bit later to King Jehoshaphat and King Ahab. And that's when there was great expansion between Israel and Judah and they took over territories. And that was largely to do because there was a righteous king in the south. Jehoshaphat was righteous for most of his life. And he formed an alliance, actually, with King Ahab, and God wasn't pleased with that. And yet, at the start, the kingdoms did grow. And they were over, together, as they were allied, were over a large swath of territory. Now, the one other time of great prosperity for the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, before Israel goes into captivity, is the reign of Jeroboam. And yet, 
Jeroboam was unrighteous. So why, why did he grow in power? He grew in power because the nation, if they failed to repent under him, were going to go into captivity and out of God's mercy, he was giving them one last time of prosperity. And during that period, he sent prophets to them. Hosea ended up going for a time to them, warning Ephraim, the northern tribes. Amos specifically went to Jeroboam and was talking to him and warning him from God. And there was this one last period, one last period where Israel was being saved temporarily under the hand or by the hand of Jeroboam II so that God could bring the warning to them once more and give them the chance to repent. But they didn't hear it. They didn't heed it. And so this glorious kingdom, as Finkelstein would put it, of Jeroboam II came to an end with his death. And after that, it was the death knell of the kingdom of Israel, shrinking in territory, king after king coming into power, Assyrian dominance, picking off different tribes, but 12 or 14 years after he died, the whole eastern uh, eastern area of Israel, Gon, Reuben, uh, Gad, Manasseh, Naphtali, all gone into captivity. Then 10 years after that, the rest of them. Samaria besieged for three years, then gone. And the last hurrah for Israel was yes, under this King Jeroboam. And it existed as this little window of time where God could send a warning once again. He loved Israel, of course. They were, they were his, not just Judah. Why send prophet after prophet to the northern tribes? Why send Elijah? Why send Elisha? They went to the northern tribes predominantly because God loved them and God wanted them to change. God wanted them to return to him. And some of them would eventually during the time of um, right as Samaria was about to fall. King Hezekiah did send a warning message to them. And some of them did go down to uh, Judah and escape. But not the majority, by far not the majority. That's why there was a period of growth. This wasn't to this wasn't Jeroboam's doing. As much as Finkelstein would say it was, this was actually God's doing. And God did it because he had mercy upon the northern tribes of Israel. I'll just jump down towards the end now, the last subhead. Uh, it says this, One key question that all this raises is how did the biblical compilers in the 7th century BCE Jerusalem know so much about the reign of an Israelite king who had lived more than a century earlier? That is Jeroboam the second. This is part of the larger mystery, it writes. It's unclear how the Bible manages to be so precise when chronicling the names and dates of the kings of Israel and Judah, even going back to the 9th century BCE, to the point that this information can be successfully cross-referenced with Assyrian texts which mention some Israelite rulers. So it's quite funny. It's acknowledging here that the Bible is amazingly accurate. When it's documenting kings, how long they reigned, and where they reigned from, and it matches the Assyrian documents who mention the Israelite kings. It's amazing. It's amazing that these hillbillies in the 7th century during Josiah's time could be so accurate. It says, The likely solution 
is that the chronicles of Jeroboam II and other northern kings reached Jerusalem in written form, possibly together with refugees who fled Judah when the Assyrians conquered Israel around 720 BCE, Finkelstein says. Before that destruction, the kingdom of Israel definitely had the ability and resources to produce poetic and religious texts as evidenced by the, these invocations as such as the Balaam inscription, a prophecy by a Moabite prophet, Balaam, which also dates to the 8th century BCE. Judah reached this level of literacy, literacy only much later. Can you believe that? I, I really just don't understand this logic. It's like glorifying the northern kingdom of Israel for some reason. I don't know why. It's like this this huge war between the southern kingdom of Israel and the northern kingdom. Oh, sorry, the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel continues to this day in the archaeological circles of Tel Aviv University versus Hebrew University. And you've got this pro-northern kingdom oh, that is that is espoused. Uh, or a view that's espoused by the Tel Aviv University, and that even they bring it's saying that oh the people in the south they didn't actually know how to write anything, uh, at least till Josiah's time, and so they couldn't possibly have recorded the history of the northern kings or even their own southern kings. That must have come from the north, and so the Bible itself looks like it was written in the north, and then they brought some of those details down, they changed them a bit. They changed some of the names and they attached uh, a southern kingdom tradition to what really took place in the northern kingdom. Because again, they couldn't really write this stuff in the south anyway, which is just absolutely crazy and contrary to what's been found in archaeology. In what's been found in archaeological digs in terms of writing. We've got writing. He's talking about them not being able to write till um, much later. Well, okay go through Hezekiah's tunnel. And this is the end of the 8th century. And you'll see a replica at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel of beautiful ancient Hebrew writing. I'm pretty sure Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom of Judah. And here you are, the same around the same time period, he is saying that this Bible from the north was written, these religious texts from the north were written, but they couldn't produce those in the south. And look at how beautiful that writing is, how, how well written it is. Um, and you, I guess it's in the Istanbul Museum right now. But that's just one instance where you have beautiful texts from the 8th century uh, well, the end of the 8th century in Jerusalem. Then you can go back to the actual what we found, I think it was 2012 in the Ophel. It's called the Ophel Inscription. Beautiful uh, ancient Hebrew script, and that was found 9th century context in Jerusalem. Oh, no, sorry, 10th century context in Jerusalem. And beautiful text again. You can look at the, the, the Kirbet Kayafa Ostrakon also. 10th century text, a little bit uglier. <laughs> I'll admit it's not that pretty. But that's that's three. They, he's saying that they couldn't even they didn't have the writing resources, um, this level of literacy in the south to write stuff down during the time of David thereafter, and in fact, it, basically in the north they were the geniuses, and they compiled all this history, and the south stole it once they finally got up to speed, once they looked at the copies of the books, these books and these histories that were brought down from these refugees uh, from Samaria when Assyria conquered it. That's what they would have you believe. Now, that's all I want to read from that article. Again, I'll leave a link for it if you want to go ahead and read some of it. Um, 
I'm not trying to attack Mr. Finkelstein in any way. I've met him. Um, I've met him a couple of times. Very, he is a nice man to talk to, and and he's very welcoming and accommodating. But I do think that a lot of these these theories that he has are way off, and in many ways, I think they're dangerous. They're dangerous because they they're trying to do away with the biblical King David. And really, if you want to uh, talk about it in biblical terms, he's he's invoking the spirit of Jeroboam the second which was the same as Jeroboam the first. Jeroboam the first, who split from the throne of David to the detriment of the Israelite tribes. This is what the original Jeroboam said. And Kings talks about how every single uh, king that followed Jeroboam, though there were different dynasties in the north, they followed the way of Jeroboam. And what was that way? Well, it's recorded here in 1 Kings chapter 12. And it's the same spirit we see at work. In, in these reports, in this archaeological theory that David was nothing and that the northern tribes were everything. First Kings chapter 12 and verse 16 says this, So when all Israel, that is the northern tribes, saw that the king, that is Rehoboam, hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. They were done. They were done with David's dynasty ruling over them. And so with it went all the promises. And to this day, the promises go through the line of Judah. They go to David and his sons. David promised in, in, in well, God promised through Jeremiah, uh, chapter 33, that David would never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. There would always be somebody and then that would continue all the way up until Shiloh comes, as it says there in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. And unto him shall the gathering of the peoples be. I mean, the promises of this kingly line to David, as laid out in the Bible time and time again, lead to the very coming of the Messiah. He is going to be a son of David. Now, I doubt Finkelstein and others um, really believe that's going to happen. But the Bible's pretty clear. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse, uh, I'm not sure uh, off the top of my head, but somewhere in there, it talks about David being raised up to be their king once again. David, not not Jeroboam the second, but David. And so at that point, it's going to be it's going to be obvious to all. But even now, to destroy the history of of David really does go go right at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the hope of the future, that there is coming a king on David's throne that is going to rule over not just Judah, not just Israel, but all nations. And if you desire to read up more about those promises in the Bible that come through David's line, you need to request our book, uh, it's entitled The United States and Britain in Prophecy. It was written by our founder, uh, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong. It's gone out to over 6 million people, and we'll be willing to send it to you wherever you are in the world. That's about all for today. Thank you very much for listening into the program. If you'd like to send me some feedback, you can do so by writing emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. I'll see you next week.